Ben Nempton has lived an absolutely exceptional life. He set out a list of a hundred unbelievable things that him and his boys were going to do, and they just went out and did it. And on this podcast, we talk all about it. He writes about them in the Bucket List Journal and encourages all of us to just do that crazy shit. To have the belief, have the intention, have the excitement, have the friendship, the camaraderie, everything that goes in to not waiting until some other point in the future where we're going to do the things that we want to do in life, but just to go do them. And that's why he's one of the top inspirational speakers in the whole world. And this podcast was just a blast. It's one of those episodes where at the end of the conversation, it's like, this is my fucking homie. And I think you're going to feel the same way after listening to Ben Nempton. But before we get started, a word from our sponsors. Up first is Helix Sleep. Now, the first time I got a Helix mattress, I loved it. And we put it in because I wasn't quite sure whether I wanted it on my main bed. We put it up in our guest bed. And all of a sudden, my wife continually wanted to start sleeping in the guest bedroom. She is obsessed with the Helix Sleep mattress. And I've grown to be obsessed with it just as much as she is. And I don't know what magic they put inside the Helix Sleep mattress, but I know that they're using products that are not as toxic to the environment and toxic to you as many of the other mattress manufacturers out there. But they really just got this thing dialed and the mattress just arrives at your door. And of course, once it's at your door, the hard work is done. You don't have to go to the store and pick it out and lie on a bunch of mattresses that a bunch of other people have been lying on. These are amazing. And there's a bunch of different levels of firmness. I particularly like their most firm mattress. That's the one for me. And they even have cooling technology that they can add to the mattress as well, which keeps you cool, much like when we were primitive hominids and we were sleeping on the cool ground and then being warmed up by the sun in our blankets this is the way to go if you're interested in a new mattress it's economical it feels great it's better for the environment than a lot of other mattress choices helix sleep is something that i can absolutely endorse and if you ever run into my wife vilana on the street she'll give an even more glowing testimonial for helix mattresses and of course we're not the only ones that believe that helix mattresses are some of the best around helix was awarded the number one best overall mattress pick of 2021 by gq and wired magazine it's been recommended by chiropractors and doctors and it's been a solution for a lot of people looking for an absolutely great mattress so if you're interested, Helix is offering up to $200 off all mattress orders and two free pillows for my listeners at helixsleep.com slash amp. That's H-E-L-I-X sleep.com slash amp for $200 off all mattress orders and two free pillows. Oh, and one more thing to mention, they also have a 10-year warranty and you get to try it out for 100 nights risk-free and they'll pick that thing up if you don't like it so you really have nothing to lose helixsleep.com amp next up we have titan now this is a category that i've never talked about on a podcast before but it's really important to figure out what you're going to do with your money and this is something that when you're younger it's just fine to have a checking account and maybe you'll put something in a savings account but it's really actually not utilizing your money in the best way possible. So there's a lot of different levels on how you can actually manage your money. And Titan makes a lot of that really easy. So I wanted to just share 
this as one of those possible options. Now, once you go inside the Titan ecosystem, you can check out Kathy Wood's new ARK Venture Fund, which is exclusive on the investing app. And that is one of the first venture capital funds that's accessible to accredited and non-accredited investors. It means you can invest in ARK's big bets in both public and private markets with not a bunch of money, as little as 500 bucks. And previously, you would need substantial wealth and connections to access these types of funds, but they're actually democratizing the way that you're able to access them. So everyday investors can access the ARK venture funds. And to be clear, this is really something that's unique in the wealth management space. So if you want to get involved, it's simple. You sign up for the Titan app, you deposit money and purchase shares in the ARC Venture Fund. And then from there, Kathy Wood and her investment team at ARC invest and they really do the rest. So you're putting your money to work. Now, there's no guarantee that they're going to make money. The markets are chaotic and wild, but you'll at least know that you're investing with someone that has the expertise to really help navigate these what really are choppy waters right now. So If you haven't heard of Titan, of course, this is a very unique opportunity and getting your money actively managed in diversified income generating asset classes like private credit, private real estate, and access investment opportunities, of course, like I mentioned with ARC Venture. It really helps you build a more diversified portfolio without having to have the tons of cash that's usually required for that. So I'm not currently invested with Titan. And this is a paid partnership. And at the time of this reading, I am not yet invested in Titan's strategies. But if you're interested, go to titan.com slash amp and check it out. Once again, T-I-T-A-N dot com slash amp. Last up, we have on it. And I'm going to talk again about Alpha Brain Black Label. It took us 10 years to find a formula that was the black label version of alpha brain what does black label mean well that's just like the premium that's the good shit that's the top shelf shit now i love alpha brain i'm actually on alpha brain regular right now and i feel sharp as fuck and i love it but that's really actually only because i ran out of alpha brain black label the reason that i like black label so much is it just has a couple different key ingredients it has some nutritional mushrooms that actually help light up the brain it also has different forms of choline and it has mucunipurians which really taps into the dopamine system and really keeps me highly engaged focused and rewarded for the work that i'm doing so alpha brain black label is just my absolute go-to it's also really good as a mood enhancer i just feel better when i'm taking it and when my mood is better i'm more productive and i'm able to be at my best so if you guys haven't checked it out please do. It is the shit. Also, the packaging is super sexy, so it's a great gift if you want to give it to somebody. Go to onnit.com slash Aubrey for 10% off everything at Onnit and also Alpha Brain Black Label. Once again, onnit.com slash Aubrey. And now an uninterrupted podcast with Ben Nempton. Ben, how are you, brother? I'm great, man. I'm happy to be here. I'm also also happy that I didn't make a mess in your bathroom because you have one of those electronic, like Japanese toilet seats. Oh, it senses your ass. It will not shoot water straight up into the air. If there's no asshole present, Yeah, it, it also doesn't like you peeing standing up because I was peeing and then all of a sudden the top just started closing. <laughs> and I was like, oh, this is gonna be great. Like Aubrey's gonna oh, come back and I've peed over the senses, entire bathroom. It senses for cock. Right, okay. To actually, well, thank so you. Yeah. Are you just-, <laughs> <That> was- <laughs> just kidding, everybody. Let's dive in that. <laughs> um, so- Reading this, reading this bucket list journal, talking to you, being familiar with it. First thing, uh, Canadian national rugby team. Yeah. I didn't yeah. know that part of the story. Yeah. I was, I, I was a track. You were fucking playing rugby in Canada. 
Yeah, I was playing rugby, especially, you know, it's pretty big on the West Coast. It's kind of like football in the South on the West Coast of Canada. That's where the national team trains. Uh-huh. My my high school coach was an ex-national coach. So it was like, you know, it was, it was the thing that, it was the thing to do. Now, can Canada compete at all? Because I was in University of Queensland for the Rugby World Cup mm-hmm. when actually the Rugby World Cup was in Australia yeah. that year. So this was 2003, 2004. Yeah. And uh, the Aussies were actually training in the UQ, like, weight room. Yeah. Fucking monsters. Monsters, yeah. Monsters. They, I think they lost to the All Blacks that year. They were right. also monsters. In a bigger monsters. Partic- bigger monsters, particularly yeah. savage yeah. variety. Um, but I don't didn't remember Canada. No, we, we don't quite compete with the big boys, right? <laughs> like, we're not going yeah. up against Australia, South Africa, all blacks. Spring, spring box are pretty legit. Spring box. And, yes. then, and then England. England as well. And so like, sometimes, like, year. I think maybe we beat Wales once, you know, like, mm. I don't sometimes. We're I mean, actually better is, at seven. We're better a, at seven. It's a country the size of Massachusetts. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So you'd think. But we, so I played on the under 19 national team for a minute. So I wasn't, you know, I wasn't on the full men's national team, but this was like the big goal in high school was. Sure make the provincial team, which is like the state team, make the national Fucking team. put the maple leaf on your jersey and go to war. Yeah, if you're not playing hockey and you're not playing hockey, you're playing rugby, <laughs> right? So, yeah. so this was like, this is my dream, right? I was like, made the team. I was like, I was, I also had an academic scholarship to university in my hometown. So all my buddies were going to the UVic where I grew up. So I was, I was fired up. We were training for the, um, for the, for the World Cup, U19 World Cup, which is in Paris, France. I played fly half. So that's like quarterback, field goal yep. kicker. Yep. You're calling plays, you're in high pressure situations. Yep. And I always put pressure on myself. Like I just... You don't say. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> and and I think I've like sort of figured out why, but for the story, for the purpose of this story, like I'm, I'm, in, I'm in university first year and in the in my high school game, Sorry, in the championship game, we're in the provincial finals. And I have an opportunity to win the game with a kick. And mm-hmm. and just before like a like a set kick or like set a, kick. like just rolling drop kick, set kick. This is this is this is for three yeah, set kick for three points. Uh we're down by maybe one or two. So this either ties us or puts us ahead. And as I'm setting up for the kick and I'm about to kick. Someone on the sideline yells, Einhorn and Finkel. (laughs) (laughs) Close. No, someone yells, don't choke or choke or something like that. And it just like, I heard it. And it just was enough to kind of shake me where I second guess myself for a millisecond. Yeah. And I missed the kick. And this for me was like devastating, dude. I was, we lost the game and this was like everything. And I was like, it's, it's, it's over, you know? I'm never going to play again. Everything of that is just so catastrophic. Cut to, I made the national team. Amazing. But I'm going on the field every day, practicing my kicks. And in the dead of night, these thoughts creep in. I'm like, I better not blow it at the World Cup. Like, what if I totally blow this again? I'm like, can't do it. Can't do it. You know, can't blow it. But of course, I'm good. I go to the field. I'm fine. And then at night, these thoughts creep in. And I start to lose sleep. I have trouble sleeping. Mm. I get anxiety. I'm losing sleep. I start to get sort of this pressure builds and builds. And slowly, I start to slide into a depression. And I've never, ever experienced anything like this. I'm 
A-type, lots of friends, love being around people, love being social. And slowly, this depression gets to the point where I'm driving to school, I get to school, I park in the parking lot, and my anxiety is stopping me from going out of the car to class. Wow. So I sit in the, in the car and I, and I go back home. And then I can't go to rugby practice. I, I get my gear, I go into the hallway, and I'm just in this place of indecision, and I end up not going. So I get dropped from the team. And, and, and now everything is just compounding and it's spiraling down. And I get to the point where I have trouble leaving the house to go out and be with people. I'm, I become a, a shut-in. And my parents are trying everything, right, obviously, to help. Nothing really does. I'm, I'm curious, you know, like, I'm curious how it went from performance on the field to a generalized anxiety and depressive state that how how did it how did it because I, I can kind of understand it but i don't particularly understand the dynamic because i certainly understand the performance anxiety yeah. aspect yeah. i even play in a fucking rec league in the last two years in basketball mm -hmm. here doesn't matter i mean my girlfriend shows up i mean my wife shows up mm -hmm. and watches me mm -hmm. but like and i said girlfriend because it's usually who showed up back in the day when i was playing ball when it actually kind of mattered for my school yeah. but still yeah. Like if I play a bad game, I'm so hard on myself that it's like I get anxious for yeah. these games, you know? And if I play a good game, so that, like the risk reward for that. So I'll find myself, doesn't matter if I have a big podcast that day, I'll mm -hmm. still be anxious, not about the podcast or whatever right. important thing I'm doing. I'll be anxious about a fucking rec league game. <laughs> and then I had to like work through it. It was beautiful because I have a consciousness now that can actually work through it and understand it. Yeah. But I guess what I'm really curious about, and we'll get into a lot of the solutions yeah. that are deeply involved in this, you know, movement that you've created. But if you've been able to track how it went from specific to the field to generalized in your life in such a dramatic way. I think two things. One was the sleep. When I started losing sleep, uh -huh. that just kind of messed me up across the board. So I was, my nervous system was shot. I just was, I, I felt just unhinged and and if you don't sleep for long enough you're just messed up you know so that started to make me feel um worse and worse another thing i think you know you and i are probably different like for me i have a i think a propensity to feel those types of feelings that can be triggered by different things that now i've realized are when i'm one of the reasons i i believe is i wasn't actually i thought this was my dream but it wasn't the thing I really wanted to do. So a big part of my life, I was gunning towards this goal to look good, like or to make other sure. people happy because I thought this was the dream. This was the high school dream, but it wasn't my dream. And now I realize like I start to get really down when I'm not being authentic to who I am, whether it's in a relationship or whether it's in a professional pursuit or it's a big part of my life. Yeah, it's like you're not on the timeline of your true story. It, it, which ironically, the Buried Life poem, which inspired this whole journey, the one line that I love so much is it's all about tracking your true original course. That's the Matthew Arnold poem. Mm -hmm. I transcribed that when I read that in this, in this, and it's so potent. I wonder, do you have it, do you have it memorized or? Yeah. So the four lines that. It's at the end, the four lines at the end are, yeah. the, are the powerful ones. And so this is a poem that just randomly my buddy got assigned to an English class. He read it because it was homework. But it was the same time that we were talking about making a film. We had no idea 
what the film was going to be about, but we're like, why haven't we done any of the things we've ever wanted to do? We've never even tried. We have all these dreams. We have all these goals. And we just talk about them. We we haven't even taken one step. So we're like talking about maybe there's a film about this. And he gets assigned this poem. And the four lines are that he sent to us. But often in the world's most crowded streets, but often in the din of strife, there rises an unspeakable desire after the knowledge of our buried life. And he said, guys, this poet, 150 years ago, he's talking about the exact same thing we're talking about right now. Mm -hmm. You know, which is that we have all these things that we want to do, but we haven't done them because they're buried. We have these moments when we're inspired, the day-to-day buries them. And we're like, holy shit, we're not the first people to feel like this then if this guy wrote this poem in 1852. Let me finish the poem because I think the whole thing is incredibly profound. A thirst to spend our fire and restless force in tracking out our true original course. A longing to inquire into the mystery of this heart which beats so wild, so deep in us. To know whence our lives come and where they go. It's like, fuck yeah. Epic. That's it. It's like, so now it's starting to understand, I'm starting to understand that basically you were in a time in between stories where you recognized that the story you were, the story in the timeline you were on was not your true story from whence you came and where you were going. Mm -hmm. There was a different story, but the time in between stories is difficult because it's like the goo. It's like being in the chrysalis where you don't really know where you're going. You don't have any forward thrust of energy going anywhere. So you're just cooking in your own unknowingness. And until you learn the art of pure surrender, which none of us know when we're a young man Mm -hmm. in particular, or a young anybody in particular, Mm -hmm. I get it now. Yeah. So, and this was the first time this had ever happened. So it was, I was shook, you know, because now all of a sudden, this is my first mental health crisis. I don't know why I'm feeling like this. I'm not talking about it because I don't want everyone, everyone to know that I'm broken, you know? Yep. I have no idea that other people might be experiencing this. All I know is that six months ago, I was on the national rugby team. I had an academic scholarship, and now I have trouble leaving the house. And my parents would be like, "Go for just go for a 15-minute walk every day. Just get out the house, get some fresh air. And they would kind of force me out of the house. And sometimes, dude, I would just go hide in the driveway for 15 minutes because I was so anxious about running into somebody. Right. And someone being like, yo, where you been? And so I would hide and I'd come back and I'd tell my parents I went for a walk. And so one of the most important things that, that happened was after that s- semester that I dropped out of, my buddies came to the house and, and literally pulled me out of the house. and like, dude, we're going to work in a new town for the summer and you're coming with us. And I was like, no, yeah, I'm dragging friends. my feet. And they pulled me out of the house and, and, and they brought me to this new town. And then some things started to happen. I was forced to get a job and I started to be like, oh, I can actually do things for myself. You know, like I started to get some confidence because I had a job. I started talking about these feelings that I was having to my friends and they were like, hey, we've gone through some of this stuff. And I was like, what? You know, so I was learning that I wasn't totally crazy and that these, I wasn't alone, basically. Mm-hmm. That helped. But the biggest thing was I started to meet new types of people. And I started meeting these kids that I realized gave me energy. They energized me. And I started to understand that, hey, there's some people that give me energy and some people drain me. Mm. And these were kids that had started their own businesses. They'd already traveled around the world. They started a clothing line out of nowhere. 
And I was like, okay, I'm starting to feel back to myself. I'm driving back home after that summer away. By the way, you know, coming out of depression and, and any mental health challenge is very complex. So I, it's not as simple as me starting to just do these three things. I finally got a therapist. That was huge. Mm-hmm. There are many things that contributed. Um, so we can talk about that later. But just in terms of this one decision that changed my life forever was I was like, I'm going to try and only surround myself with people that inspire me. Just like these new kids. And that would completely change my my path. And I think that was like the catalyst that turned me from the mud out of the mud. Yeah. Because I got back home and for the first time in my life, I was intentional about who I wanted to hang out with. Mm. And you know, you're in high school, you have this small Petri dish of friends. And you don't know there's this whole world out there. And eventually you'll find your crew. You'll find your tribe. And so at this point, I was like, hmm, who's inspiring? And there was one dude that came to mind and he had made videos in the neighborhood for years. And he'd always show the videos at the end of summer. So he'd make a summer video with all the friends and then screen it. And he made some videos at McGill University at, at Frosh Week, which is like the Olympics of drinking. Mm. And he'd made these kind of like, <laughs> they were kind of like jackass meets inspirational party videos. <laughs> so you'd mm-hmm. watch these videos of him and his friends and you'd just be like, I want to go out and have a good time. And so I saw this video, this is early Facebook, 2006. And I was like, that's, that's who I want to hang out with. I didn't really know him too well. So I, I, I call him up. He actually took my sister to prom. So, <laughs> mm. so I was like, I was conflicted. But I, was, I was like, okay, <laughs> I'm going to go and call us. Called him, no answer. Called him again, no answer. Third time he picks up. I'm like, hey man, it's Ben, you know, we, I know we haven't really hung out that much, but I know you make movies. Like I've been thinking like, I want to make a movie. He's like, oh, that's funny. I was just talking to my buddy Dave about something like this. I was like, perfect. You call Dave. I'll call your older brother, Duncan. And let's the four of us talk about making a film. These are all guys that grew up in Victoria. Two of them at a private school, one of them at my public school. So we're chatting about this film. We don't know what it's going to be about. And that's when Johnny gets assigned the poem. And so we're like, okay, perfect. Let's, this, this poet felt like this 150 years ago. Let's call our film The Buried Life. And let's make a list of all of our buried dreams and let's go after them. And every time we cross something off our list, let's help someone else do something on their list because we're going to need help because there's no way we're going to do all these list items. And so the way that we figured out what our list was, it wasn't like, let's write a bucket list. We, we, it was, it all came from the thinking about death. So we're like, came up with this question, what do you want to do before you die? Mm. And the answer to that question, that's where our list came from. And we're like, let's ask other people, what do you want to do before you die? And we'll help them if we can. And we'll do a two-week road trip in 2006. And we'll just scrape this together. We'll bore an RV. We'll make a janky website. We'll buy a secondhand camera. We'll pretend we have a production company, try and get sponsors, throw parties as fundraisers just for gas. And the whole community rallied to kind of help us get this going. In summer 2006, we'd like get this RV and we're, we're going to take a two-week road trip. And that's all it was supposed to be, was just a two-week road trip, make a short film, show our buddies. And you had your list of 100? At then, that point, yeah. Was it a, at that point, was it a combined list where mm-hmm. you guys pooled your list together? So it was like, we're going to do this or did you each have your own individuals? Most of them were, we're going to do them together. Yeah. Some of them, if one person was like, I really want to do this, like Dave wanted to ride a bull. I had a herniated disc. I was like, no way I'm riding a bull. Right, right, right. We're like, Dave. So he crossed it off for the list collectively. Yeah, exactly. Most of them were combined. But the thing that we did, we, the rule, there were two rules. First rule, you had to pretend you were a millionaire. 
Like you had 10 million bucks in your bank when you wrote the list. So money was no object. Right. And you had to pretend that anything was possible. Anything. So we came up with the funniest like ideas. We were laughing when we put it. We we're like, there's no way we're ever going to do this stuff. Play basketball with Obama. Sit with Oprah. Go to space. Make a TV show. Pay off our parents' mortgage. Grow a mustache. Be a knight for a day. You know, get something named after you. All of these things that we just thought would be really fun. And 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 then we had no idea. I remember, I remember we had we got the RV checked by a mechanic before we left because we're like we don't have the money to get this fixed or towed if it comes back. So let's like ask a mechanic if if this will make it back. And we took it in the mechanics like guys don't expect this to to make it back. It's not going to make it back. <laughs> and we were like I remember sitting on the curb the night before we we're supposed to go. We pulled this RV out of our. Johnny Duncan's uncle's like swamp to get it out. Mm-hmm. And we had made like, we call them decals in Canada. You call them decals. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> it said one film, four guys, a hundred things to do before you die on the side of the bus. We're ready uh-huh. to go. And we're sitting there and, and we're like, this is a bad idea. Like, <laughs> what are we doing? We didn't told anybody what we were doing because we didn't know how to explain it. And this mechanic was like, it's not going to make it back and we didn't have the money to tow it. And I remember Dave saying, Guys, we come this far. Let's do it. Thank God, because we almost pulled the shoot. And uh, that's that's this kind of like refusal of the call and the classic hero's journey arc, right? Like, there's always this moment right before you're about to embark and cross the threshold yeah. where it's like, oh, fuck, maybe not, maybe not. And we have to grapple with that. And it just it's such an interesting part of the arc. It always shows up. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. The other thing that's cool is that if it was me on my own, I wouldn't have done it. Mm-hmm. I needed the accountability of the three other guys. I needed those guys to be like, no, we're doing this. And that happened so many times. Yeah, and that's a, so in the classic Hero's Journey arc, that actually comes, meet your allies comes after the this kind of crossing the threshold moment. But I think often in real life, it happens before. Mm-hmm. Like, like we do need support. In the beginning. In the beginning, like from the from the drop to even deal, even maybe even to get the call, because you needed your buddy to have this poem mm-hmm. to even get the call to adventure mm-hmm. that took you from ordinary life stage one into the call to adventure. Mm-hmm. And then of course refusal of the call. Mm-hmm. And then well, actually I think stage four is like meet the meet the mentor. So I guess the poem was kind of like the mentor yeah. in that way. And then it's cross the threshold and then it's meet the allies. But it can be in different orders, but it's it's very much. This is the hero's journey yeah. that we're talking about here. No, yeah, it's and 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 so many times throughout the next ten years, because this two week road trip ends up lasting 10, 12 years, right? Because what and and through those years, there's many, many downs. Um, and each time, I would have given up if it was by myself. But one of the other guys was like, "No, we're doing it," or I told the other guy, "No, we're doing it." Right? We got to believe. We got to keep doing this, and that all came from that decision to surround myself with people that made me feel more like me, like Mm -hmm. my true self. And the other thing that was crazy was the reason why writing the list was so liberating because it was so exciting to actually say what I wanted. This was the first time in my life I actually expressed what I wanted. And a lot of it came out of this sort of creative expression that I wanted to do. Like I wanted to make a TV show with my friends. I wanted to make a movie. Right. You know, I wanted to go have fun. And 
I was not going down that path. I was going to be a, I was in fucking kinesiology. I was going to be a physiotherapist, a chiropractor, like, mm -hmm. you know, play for like work for a professional sports team. And so I, by writing it down for the first time in my life, I was like, whoa, this is, this is exciting. Like, I don't even care if we end up doing these things. The, just the fact that we're going to go and try is, is really fun. It's almost like you uncovered the meta want, which was the want to claim your want. Mm -hmm. You know, like, like the, all of these wants, yeah, of course, ride a bull, you mm -hmm. know, mm -hmm. play ball with a bomb, which I want to talk to you about. It's crazy that you actually crossed that off the list. <laughs> and I want to go through some of these stories because I'm sure they're epic. But ultimately, the, the list is just a way for you to actually claim a life where you're going after what you want, which is actually really what you want. Exactly. More than each individual thing. Yeah, you want the individual things and that's what gets you going. But really it's like, I claim that I want things and I want to live a spectacular life. Mm -hmm. And that's what I fucking want. And that's the most important thing. The first piece of writing that I ever produced ended up, I thought it was going to be a book, ended up being a course. It was called Go For Your Win. Mm -hmm. And it was exactly that idea. Like, don't go for some middling, mediocre path. Like, go for what you really want, your win. Like, what? What's your win? What's your what's your original course? Exactly. And then, of course, the next step, which is what I would have gotten hung up on if I wasn't around those guys and most people get stopped at is the action and, and talking about it. Because then you're like, oh, what if people know that this is what I want? What are they going to think? What if they know that this is what I'm doing and then I fail? And I was funny. I was reading The Four Agreements last night and he talks about like everyone has the right to express and take action towards the, his or her dream. And, you know, as I look back, like these are all really huge lessons for me. But at the time, you know, we didn't know what we were doing. We were just like, all right, now we've got this list. Let's go after it. And let's talk with as many people as we can about it. We would drive up to radio stations. We'd park this janky RV in the parking lot of the radio station and we wouldn't leave until they put us on the air. We go on the air and we talk about our list and we say, hey, if you have a dream, send it to us. And this just not caring about like what other people are going to think about this, this and expressing this and sharing them, all of a sudden people started to hear about it. And then we started getting emails. People mm -hmm. would be like, hey, I saw your bucket list online because we posted our 100 things. They're like, I saw you want to ride a bull. Like my buddy has a bull ranch. We'll get you on a bull. Mm. And be like, hey, I saw you want to make a toast to strangers wedding. How'd the bull go? How many seconds? So again. That wasn't you. I didn't do it. But um, they, so Dave, this is so funny. This is, so Dave's biggest dream. He's calling all these outfits trying to get on a bull. Everyone's like, you know, we, they got to sign releases for the doc. They're like, too much liability. We're not going to like, <laughs> he's like, have you ridden a bike? Like, have you ridden a horse? He's like, no, but I've ridden a bike, you know? And so, so anyways, we get to one um, place in Boise. They're going to let us do it. Dave saddles up. He's ready to go. And he does well. He does like, you know, four or five seconds. Not bad. Yeah. And then Duncan, the, our, our, our other friend, he's like, I'm going to do it. We're like, go for it. He gets on and he's like eight seconds. Woo! Yeah. He made it. He made it. And Dave's like, oh no, get me a bigger bull. <laughs> <laughs> so they bring out this massive, massive bull. They're like, are you sure? And Dave's like, oh yeah. He's like, I'm not letting Duncan do eight seconds. 
brings out this big bull. Oh my, dude, he just got thrashed. One, two seconds, got thrown out. Like, <laughs> lucky he didn't get totally. Yeah. He did uh, like almost tear his hamstring. So he, he, you know, so he crossed it off. Um, but so the, the thing that was interesting is like, the doc actually originally was like, let's ask people what they want to do before they die. Let's help them do that. That'll be what the doc's about. And we'll learn from people why or why they haven't done the thing they want to do. And we'll do our list on the side, but like, who cares about our list? Like, that's selfish to be able to just like, let's do a documentary about our bucket list. Like, let's, let's like help these people, but let's do our stuff as, as well because it'll be fun. Yeah. We didn't think people were going to care about our list. But what we found is that as we started to travel, people wanted us to cross all 100 things off our list. And then we started seeing people being like, hey, I started my list. And then we saw like a couple people, hundreds, thousands, and over time, you know, all these people going after their bucket list because we were going after ours. And then you sort of realize, wow, when you do what you love, you inspire other people to do what they love. And give them permission. Exactly. And that creates a ripple effect that's really powerful. It's a great win-win because you get to do the shit you want to do, but then you also give people permission to do theirs. And so, and just by being true to yourself, which is like, how many people have told you, you've inspired me to do this. You've mm -hmm. inspired me to think about that. Mm -hmm. It's like, well, you could have easily just not started the podcast because there's a million reasons not to start one. And, but you're following this true passion and it take, creates a ripple effect. So we're like, okay, great. We can continue to go after our list. We can inspire other people and then we can also help other people. And so this two-week road trip, we're like, at the end of it, it's national news. We're getting all these emails. You know, the bus, the, the RV didn't break down. We're stoked. <laughs> mm -hmm. And we get back and we're like, let's do this again next summer. But let's go bigger. Let's go after bigger list items. Let's get a crew to follow us to film it. And let's help more people. And that started this, this journey that we went on uh, that basically brought me here. <laughs> One of the things that occurred to me recently is I am a strong believer in reincarnation. I just believe it. I've been on the psychedelic medicine path since mm -hmm. I was 18. I've experienced a lot of things that have shown me, not necessarily my own past lives, but just the unborn, undying nature of what you could call your soul or consciousness. Mm -hmm. And it just makes perfect sense to me that we would incarnate many different times during learn many different lessons. And obviously this is not my own thinking, lots of different massive schools of thought and philosophy and spirituality also believe in reincarnation, which also implies that there's an infinite nature to something that would be like the soul. Now, of course, there's other religions that say you do this once and then you're either heaven or hell. I'm, I'm not talking about those. Certainly not my belief system. All respect to everybody's belief system, not mine. And I think a lot of people are probably similar. They probably believe that, you know, all right, we're going to reincarnate, meaning that in an infinite universe with an infinite amount of time, mm -hmm. which we all pretty much agree on, and there's an infinite amount of potential lives on even potential different planets or potential, but basically, like we're talking about many, many, many opportunities to incarnate. Most likely, mm -hmm. if you believe that. And I was thinking about it, and it's like, it, you can hold that belief and simultaneously still be like, yeah, but this life, though, I'm just going to play it real safe. Like, I'm just going to, like, watch out and play it safe. But then just imagine, like, 
looking back at all of the infinite lives that you've gotten to live or the so many and being like, ah, fuck that one right there. I didn't go for it. I played it safe. Like, do you really No, you don't want that. So it's almost like using your own death is one good marker. And that's a great way. Memento mori. Remember that you will die. Like beautiful piece of advice. Like remember at your death, what you're going to look back on. Bronnie Ware talks about a deathbed regrets. It's a very important end point Mm -hmm. to look back on this one life. But then I was thinking, well, fuck, imagine even being a soul and being like, you had this whole life and you just played it safe and just compromised and didn't go for it. Like, come on, bro. Like, really? <laughs> like, get back you in there. You should be ashamed of yourself. Yeah, get, get back in there and fucking go for it's it. It's like the coach in the, uh, yeah, on yeah. the sidelines slap Come him. on. Yeah. You shake can it, do better. Shake it off. Get back in there. Yeah, slap him the, on the butt. Uh, yeah, get back yeah. in there. Yeah. And I was, it, was, it was interesting to even shift the perspective even one level further. But yeah. both are really valuable tools to take a look at your life right now and be like, come on. Like, what are we doing? Yeah. Let's go for it. Because in the going for it, you can't lose. And I think that's one of the points you make. In the going for it is the win. The going for it is the win. Action is the win. Gunning it is the win, for sure. Because at the very least, you learn something about yourself. Totally. And and usually, even full-out failure is a pivot in a direction that you need to go. Yep. And even if you stop and you can't go anywhere, you take everything that you've learned from that process and then you apply it to your next thing. And that like discomfort that you feel or the shame or whatever, you know, all of that is, is just growth so yeah. that you're evolving to the person that you eventually will need to be to actually do the real thing that you want to do. And I know this so well because, you know, the company that I founded on it, it started as a failure. And the failure was I was creating hangover supplements. Mm-hmm. Nobody wanted them. They were way too expensive as hangover supplements, basically. And it was one to like prepare you while you were out partying. And the other one was to help you recover. But they were like $30 a bottle. And we were like, fuck that. I'll just fucking sleep more. Like nobody cared (laughs) at that point. Yeah. But the fact that I was making supplements and understood the manufacturing process, understood the bottling and the agreements and and the rules and all of that, when it came the opportunity to create the what became our flagship alpha brain the nootropic i had the skill set available to actually execute and have the resources to execute so my failure was one pivot away from the greatest at least outward success that i've had in the founding of on it and the in the creation of this really my dream company Mm -hmm. and it started with a failure so recently you know i had a buddy who's about to start his own business and he's you know young guy Mm -hmm. And I'm looking at what his idea is and I'm looking at what what his plans are. And it's like, that's real tough, man. It's real tough. And 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 some part of me wants to be like, man, I look, I've been around a lot of businesses. I don't think that's gonna work. But some part of me is like, don't you dare like say that, because this may be exactly the path that's necessary. That even if this thing fails, he's one pivot away from something that's wildly successful. And if he stops and doesn't go for this thing, it may derail his life course in a significant way. Mm-hmm. So the you know the idea is like, all right, here's some things to think about. This is tough on this. This is where MOQ is going to, you're going to run into some problems. This is like, but fucking go for it, man. Like send it, you know, even though some part of me is like, I don't think that shit's going to work. But that's not the, that's not the role of like a good mentor. The good mentor is like, no, fucking go for it. Send it. Mm-hmm. 
And that's all also may not be the ultimate goal for him is to is to build a successful company. You know, as you said, like the goal might be to to do it and learn and get ready for the next one. And right. the, the and the thing is that that's what's that that fear that you know, am I gonna fail? That's that's typically what stops most people from from doing the thing. Right. It's the fear of failure or it's the fear of what other people think. And the whole thing that's funny about the fear of what other people think is like the older you get, you're like, oh, I don't think people are actually thinking about me that much. Like you think they're thinking about you, but do they really care? And are those people that you end up really caring about if they care? Like the people that you love, they, they're not going to look down on you. They're going to support you. And you want to be around those people. And so even if there are people that look down on you for failing, that's a great indicator to just shift those people out of your right. life. And so there's like a great saying. It's like in my 20s, I was worried about what other people thought. In my 40s, didn't care what other people thought. In my 60s, I realized they were never thinking about me in the first place. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's, you know, it's interesting. My mom was a professional tennis player, made it all the way to the semifinals of Wimbledon. Oh my God. And I loved it. I got into tennis over the pandemic. I'm obsessed. Yeah. Pickleball has been my jam lately. I don't know mm -hmm. if you've ever played yeah, that. That was my gateway drug to tennis. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> uh, but one of the things, that's what she would always tell me. Cause I would, again, I was, I, had, I would get so nervous before games and, and she was like, son, let me tell you a secret. Like everybody who you think really cares, they don't actually really give a shit. They don't give a shit. Like you think that they're all over there yeah. and they're like, even if you have a spectacular failure, you're giving them the delight of being able to talk about, did you see Marcus with those seven air balls in a row? What a catastrophic collapse, you know? But like <laughs> yeah. they enjoyed it. Yeah. Like they enjoy, like they didn't really, they don't really, really care. And that's the thing. Like this is the wisdom that you're, that you're sharing of like the elder mm. who's like, hey, nobody cares. And I think too, like, because, you know, if you're at a point where, you know, look, I, I'm, I'm still a young guy. I, I, I definitely don't think that I'm wise by any means. But what I do try and do is I don't necessarily think I'm an elder, but I try and consult my elder self. Yeah. So I think about myself at 90 years old and I'll try and talk with that older person as, as much as possible when it comes to decision-making. So I'm like, 90-year-old Ben, are you going to regret not doing this? Are you even going to are you even going to remember this? Like if I'm stressed out about something, sometimes I'm like, I don't think I'm even going to remember this in five years, two years, let alone when Shit, I'm 90. Fucking five days Exactly. You know, so, like some of the things were so locked in this, this is like, this is it, the existential crisis of my life. And then a week later, we're like, oh yeah, I was so <laughs> fucked up about that. Yeah. Unreal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, you don't even remember. And definitely other people don't remember. No. And so you use your older self as that, as that sort of litmus test to be like, is this really important? Yeah. And then, and then so you're like, okay, fear of, fear of failure or sorry, fear of what other people think. You're always going to have it. People probably aren't thinking about you as much as, as you think they are. They're not thinking about you as much as you're thinking about you. That's yeah, for damn that's sure. Because sure. they're thinking about themselves. 100%. And look, and there's no slight to them. No. Our story is our most important story to us. Right. It, it just is. 100%. It just is. And also, they're also probably more supportive than you think. Because totally. the only way that we cross things off our list is through the help of other people. Of course. We had no business doing anything. Everyone helped us. <laughs> and we were like, okay, 
we're going to keep doing this. And keep pe- paying it forward. Keep paying it forward. Yeah. So that's that cycle. And, and so we're like, okay, summer of 2007, we're going big. Let's get, we bought this old long haul transit bus, 1969 purple transit bus. I think we found it on Craigslist. No one had bought it because it was owned by a nudist, I think. (laughs) There was a bumper sticker on the back that said, happiness is no tan lines. Full on purple. (laughs) This dude loved purple. The inside was purple. Big, he had retro, there was this big double bed in the back. There was mirrors on the roof, everything purple. And we we bought it and there was this purple (laughs) leopard print Speedo that was, he had left in the shower by accident. So one of my friends like, ended up like, we're like throwing it in the garbage. He like pulled it out of the garbage, gets it on. And then we're like, <laughs> did okay. He, did he wash it? <laughs> oh, who knows? <laughs> and so we put all the list items on the side of the bus. And now we're going down to the U.S. We're doing, we're, we're doing too much. Now, we had, we, had, we had fundraised a lot of money from sponsors. This is back in 2007. So we weren't selling anything related to social media. This was like, we're going to talk about you in the news. We're going to put your logo on the bus. We're going to make t-shirts and give them away. And Levi's came on board. They sponsored us. That's cool. It was great. Uh, Palm Pilot. <laughs> Remember Palm Pilot with the stylus? Is like a cell phone? Like a like a it's like a Blackberry, Blackberry? but yeah. yeah, we may have put them out of business. <laughs> <laughs> and so they were doomed. Don't worry about it. We yeah. So anyway, so we we put all this money into uh, a crew to come with us from LA. We got a director, we got a two cameramen, an audio guy, and they followed us in RV. And like first thing we're doing, we're going to Burning Man. 2007. Early. Early. Never heard about it. I'm about to go to Burning Man in like five days. I will see you there. <laughs> All right. Let's go. Let's go. <laughs> let's go. And so we we had to take air brakes course for this bus, right? This is like, and me and one other friend, Duncan, did the air brakes course. And then our other friend, Dave, who rode the bull, he drove the whole two days <laughs> straight down to Black Rock City. We could get down to Black Rock. We had met our director. And he was going to, and we're like, meet us. We're, the first thing we're crossing off is go to Burning Man. Meet us at Burning Man. No idea. There's no cell phone reception. At that time, no cell phone reception. Yeah. You, you could only. It's still hardly. Still hardly. But you could only write messages on the board in the middle. Mm-hmm. So we get there. We're like, oh my God, how are we going to find this guy? We feel so bad. We've got this director that's meeting us. Takes him two days to find us. Finally, we find him and we're like, okay, great. We had a, you know, I mean, this was totally opened our mind to so many things. It was an incredible experience. And um, we, we, and then, so then we start to go after bigger list times for two months. And it's funny, one of the things that we went to right after Burning Man, we went straight to Vegas because we wanted to walk the red carpet. Now that is, that is actually the craziest thing. I, there's a lot of crazy things in this, but the fact that you went to Vegas after Burning Man might be the craziest thing that I've heard you say. Not only that. that's but, the last fucking place on earth I would want to go after Burning Man. Oh yeah. Yeah. We realized that very quickly. First time to Burning Man, first time in Vegas. You learn a lot. And not only that, we have no money. So we are living in, we, we, we are not staying in a hotel. We're staying in our bus in the trailer park at Circus Circus. Mm. And we're showering with the hose. And we're like, okay, we're going to try and walk the red carpet at the VMA. I mean, showering with the hose or showering with the hose. <laughs> <laughs> the story gets very, very different. Yes. Definitely not the latter. <laughs> there is, okay. Yeah. So it's so a water out of a tube. Got water it. out of a tube. Yeah. That was about it. And so we, this is actually a funny story because this is how we ended up getting the television show. And at this point we had, had no idea. We, 
this was so pre-MTV. It was like, it was just, again, that pipe dream. We were like, it'd be so fun to make a show with our friends. But we're now just like, let's get on the red carpet. It's the MTV VMAs. And it's, uh, we end up going to a thrift store. We get matching suits, these women's suits. <laughs> they were like these power women's suits that were different colors. We're like, we're going to dress like celebrities. Like Harry and Lloyd? I mean, what are we talking about? Basically, here? <laughs> yeah. But much, much tighter. I couldn't do up the, the, <laughs> the pants. And they're pinstripe, purple, blue, red, and neon green. And so we're like, here's the plan. Let's, let's pretend we're filming a secret pilot for MTV. And we'll, we'll go in the VIP entrance and we'll, we'll forge an email from Judy McGrath, the CEO of MTV, send it to ourselves and say, hey, look, boys, can't wait to see it. Your tickets are inside. Remember, no one knows that you're filming this, Judy McGrath. And we're just going to try and bum rush the back door where all the celebs are going in. And we're going to see if we can get in. And so we get in these suits. We, we clean the bus with the hose. We have our film crew. We clean ourselves with the hose. And again, water coming out of a, <laughs> yes, got of it. a tube. Got it. I could handle one of them. I just couldn't handle the second one. <laughs> and we follow all the limos. And we realize people are giving a red card, which is your entrance to, you know, your ticket, whatever, to the, to the VIP entrance to the awards. And we're like, the plan is go to the entrance, make a, a huge, like, um, like just have a storm of activity and, 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 and act like you're supposed to be there. And hopefully they'll let you in. We got cameras. We'll, we'll hopefully let us in. We go up, we say we're late for the red carpet. We start yelling in the back. We say, this is our publicist who was our director. And we just kind of make this shitstorm of activity. And we show the email and they're just kind of confused. Like, okay, wait, you guys aren't on the list. And they're like, just go over this way, I guess. And they kind of point us that way. And we just keep taking the bus into the throngs of people. And we start honking the horn into the people. And then there's the red carpet. And we just send one camera out, next camera out. And then we follow. And they just start opening the red ropes for us. And so we get red rope open, red rope open, all the way to the red carpet. And then all of a sudden we're filming on the red carpet. And one of the guys got into the awards. We got into the press area and we're filming and they had no idea that we had been there. So we film it, we get out. Cut to, we are deciding that we want to make a pilot to try and sell a show. And we're like, how funny would it be if we made our pilot about pretending to make a pilot for MTV? <laughs> So that's what we do. So we cut this together and we, we, we have this story and then we have a story of helping uh, someone else. And, you know, this is over a long period of time. I start to do trips to LA, understand the entertainment business. We're like, we need to get a production company. We partner. Anyways, long story longer. This pilot is screened in front of the MTV executives as the pitch to see if they're going to green light the show. None of them had ever known that this had happened. And Judy McGrath, who is the CEO of MTV, and <laughs> the email it. you forged, yeah, <laughs> yeah, forged maybe is too strong a word, although I guess that's what it was. Uh, and they greenlit the episode, and so this crazy oh, cool. full circle moment of literally faking it till you make it, and uh, and and the way that we got the show, we were like, we got ended up actually getting offered a television show in Canada, but they wanted to own it; they were going to be in full creative control. And we were always like, we wanted to make this like for our friends. Like we wanted our friends to really, really like mm. this. And we didn't want to give up that creative control. And so when we sold it to MTV, we were adamant that we were executive producers. 
And so for a first time producer to, to jump to EP and be the talent is like very unusual. And so we were able to keep that creative control and then carry that throughout the show, which was just like, it was really hard to make a show like that because we had no idea how to make a television show, but we learned very quickly and uh, burned a couple bridges, to be honest, because people were so used to making traditional reality TV, which mm -hmm. was, which is scripted. And, um, but I just think it's so, it's like so indicative of the whole, the whole project of just, you know, like blindly running towards that, that light that you're just like, that you just want. Like the fact that we were young, dumb and broke when we started this ended up being such a gift. Yeah. And I think if you can keep that naivete and that youthfulness inside as you grow older, doesn't mean that you have to say, fuck it, I'm going to quit my job and travel in an RV for a year. But like just that, those little sparks that you can follow to be like, you know what? Like, I do want to do stand-up comedy. Like, I'm going to, I'm going to take improv classes. Like, I know I got to take care of the kids. I know I got the job, but like, I'm just going to sign up for this shit and just, mm. just, I'm going to get on stage because it's just, I just always wanted to do it. And like, that's what the list is about. It's not about the big accomplishments. Like, if you want to do big things, I feel like you have to do it. Like, that's your, that's your true original course. Yeah. But like, instead of thinking about this as like, what's your purpose? It's like, what are all the little purposes that you have? What are all those little things that are going to make you feel alive? And what I realize is that your list is just a device to remind you that those things exist in a world that constantly buries those things. Yeah. Yeah, every, everybody wants to tell you that these things aren't possible. These things aren't realistic. These things aren't. And I think it's part of people's own frustration with themselves that they haven't followed their own things. Mm -hmm. And and it's, and I don't think people are aware that they're doing this, but if they can create a world where these things truly aren't possible, then they don't have to bear the responsibility and guilt that they didn't go for the thing that could have been possible for them. So it's almost like they try to eradicate it from the field. It's not possible. Yeah. So I don't have to feel guilty about not doing it because it's not possible for anybody. You know, and I think that's like a, like a little trap that we get caught in where people think they're giving good advice, but really they're actually trying to squash our dreams because they squash their own. Right. And they don't want to feel like they, they have that guilt of not going after exactly. that thing. But I think if you look at like the research, whether or not you admit that that guilt is there or not, it, it'll catch up to you. Yeah. And on your, on your deathbed, 76% of people, their number one regret is I wish I would have lived for me. Yeah, not other people, not what was expected of me. And I think the problem is, is a lot of people don't quite even know that they're not living for them because mm -hmm. they've convinced themselves that now this is this is what I want and yeah. this is what I'm supposed to do. So this is what I'm doing. When you actually force yourself to slow down and write down the things that are important to you, or have a conversation with your partner about what's important to you as a partner, as a couple, or with your family, to be like, what's important to us? Like, what do we actually want? It opens up this space to actually look at, am I doing this for me or am I doing this because it's what I think I want? And that's sometimes a hard thing to figure out. And sometimes for me, the thing that's been helpful is not thinking about it, but feeling it. Mm. Like if I am curious about something or if I, just the thought of it makes me feel excited. Like I've got a, a trip with friends to Columbia uh, in September. And just the thought of it, I get butterflies. I'm like, this is going to be so much fun. And so how can you follow those types of feelings to lead you down this, this experiment? It's not like this is a, you don't want to look at it like this is 
my thing. Just, just an experiment. You're just trying it. You're mm-hmm. going to see one if it works and one if it makes you happy. And like, then you find something, you're like, oh, that makes me happy. Boom. Okay, great. Now I know, put that in the, in, in, in the toolkit of these things that I know I'm going to do because they bring me sense of joy. And now the, the hard part is, how do I keep myself accountable to those things? How do I not forget about those things? Because the day-to-day, it will just bury you. And, yeah. and it's going to get worse and worse, unfortunately, because of just, I think, the way that we're headed with social media, with, you know, the, the disconnect that we have with these, you know, like meaningful connections. Um, but it doesn't mean that you can't create your own systems of accountability. Mm-hmm. I think that's an important part. I think first is connecting to your desire, mm-hmm. trusting your desire. Mm-hmm. And then I think we try to protect ourselves from our desires because we think that our desire is dependent upon the success of that thing that we're desiring. But really it's not. Like what we really want is the desire itself. And so when you realize that your desire is desire, and if you follow desire, you can't lose because you're desiring desire in the first place, that feeling of fire, and you're no longer outcome dependent upon whether this was success or failure, you don't, a lot of the fear starts to starts to dwindle away. You're like, no. Because there's no failure. There is no failure. It doesn't exist. Yeah. So you don't have to worry about that. Yeah. You're just going on the ride. Yeah. It's not like on the roller coaster. You're like, God, oh, can't wait to the end. Can't wait. <laughs> totally. <laughs> I, mean, I guess some people are. They're freaked yeah. out. <laughs> and they're terrified on their friend. <laughs> yeah, if you're terrified. <laughs> There's, it's also, uh, you know, I've been really studying and trying to create a map for the, it started as a map for the mind. But where I ran into trouble is that the mind is inextricably connected to the field of mind, of capital M mind itself, like the field of all mind. And there's a shadow expression to that, which is all of the people who will tell you what's possible, what's not possible, what you should do, what you shouldn't do. And we are connected to that. Mm -hmm. Then there's also the lighter side of the field, which is a sensing of things, of how you can fit in and serve the world and by like listening to the real needs and also listening to how you can play your instrument in this universal symphony. Mm. So like we can't separate ourselves from the field and we shouldn't, but we just have to tune our ear in such a way that we're actually, instead of listening to the conditioned failed dream chorus of you know sorrow mm-hmm. that's coming out and doubt and fear, listen to that other side of like, this is possible. And if I do this, this will actually help a lot of people. And it's like listening to that voice, like, hey, come on, you can do this, like help us. Mm. And yeah. like tuning into that is really a potent force of motivation. I like the idea of playing your own instrument. That's a really cool image because I think that the more that you can find out what that instrument is or what that thing that makes you feel most like yourself, so that true core um, energy I think that's how you make your biggest impact. The more you are yourself, the more uh, impact you will create and the more you're actually giving to other because then you can be a better version of self, yourself. There, so Therefore, you can be better at your job. You can be better husband, wife, better parent, better, you show up for people in a better way. And what I've realized is like, as I said, when I start to feel stuck and like things aren't working for me, like little things, why is this so hard? Like I'm trying to book this dentist appointment. It's like fucking not happening. Like little things in my life, they're just... And I, when a lot of that starts to compound, I realize something in my life I'm not being authentic to. Like, I, I, there's something that I need to change here. I start to get depressed. I start mm-hmm, to lose sleep. Mm-hmm. And I realize that there's a part of my life that I need to change. And it's happened a couple of times. And, and it's either in the focus of the work that I've done 
for instance, like after the show, we started a production company, same three boys, and we started making television shows because we just made the, the Buried Life show. And we're like, we can make this for other people, like people that have a story. We can keep the integrity of their creative and we can. And so we sold a couple of shows and, you know, it was like, it was working, but I hated the the day to day. I hated the work. And so it was, it was very hard for me to accept that I was going to fail at that. I was going to stop doing that. And I remember I ta- talking with my uncle at the time and, uh, he was a producer for a long time. And he said, you're not starting from the beginning. You're recycling your career. And just like that idea of recycling mm. my career and being like, I'm not starting from the beginning. I'm just, I'm just shifting. Um, made a huge, huge difference for me. Yeah. Um, and then I shifted and I was like, ah, I, I told the guys, I'm listening guys. Like I felt so guilty. I was like, I'm so sorry. I'm not the dude to run this. Like I can't do it. And I know we've worked so hard and I, I, I'm, I, I feel terrible. And luckily, one of the other guys was like, you know what? I want to do it. I love this shit. I'm going to, I'm, and so it ended up working out. And I, I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do. And I did a TEDx talk. Did a TEDx talk. I really was scared to do it. But I was like, you know what? Just because I'm scared to do it, it's probably one I want to do it. And that launched me into speaking and ultimately got me into looking at like, why are people not going after their dreams? And ultimately to writing the bucket list journal. But this shift of following my true course, you know, anytime I start to feel stuck, it's, it's, and uh, in, in part is because I'm not doing that. And it's actually interesting. I did, I did this like pretty profound, uh, ketamine breathwork experience. And it was a guided. Now we're talking the yeah. same language here. <laughs> I know this is like your love language. Basically. Yeah, yes, exactly. <laughs> and, uh, I was, one of the things that I was feeling like, you know, so breathwork in itself is just like a drug. So you're like really mm-hmm. feel. So I started to feel you know when you do heavy breath work and your hands start to curl and you're it's called tetany. Yep. Yeah, exactly. So I start to feel that. And we're doing kind of like intermittent doses of of ketamine and uh through nasal spray. And it was very low, but it, you could kind of dose it yourself. Mm-hmm. And I started to feel this energy in my hands, right? And I and I and you sort of feel your hands getting to that state. And so I felt this energy. I was like, wow, this is like powerful. And then I felt this like really powerful energy in my chest, like a rod, kind of like a cylindrical rod that was like deep in my uh, stomach and chest. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, wow, like, what's that? Like, so I sort of like dove in to like see what that was. And I kind of I go in and it's like this really vibrant, really strong, uh, vi- like almost like uh, when you see like a nuclear rod, it's like glowing, yep. zoom. And I go in and I I look at him. I was like, what is that? What's that power? And I'm like, oh shit, that's me. Like, I am most powerful. I can tap into my true potential when I'm true to myself. And if I'm not being true to myself, then I'm leaving all this stuff on on the table. And this was like a reminder of like a year or two of, of me, you know, kind of, having to realize this through through some other stuff, through relationships and through some other stuff. But I, it was just reinforced this whole idea. I was like, this is all this is about. This is the journey. Mm-hmm. Just like tapping into that true you. And, you know, that image of that rod just stuck with me of realizing like, whoa, like, it is a lot of potential if yeah. you stay true to that. 
you have a you have a bit of and we may have covered a bit of it already um but you have a a kind of a list of things that kind of stop people from actually going for it mm-hmm. you know what is what is this what is your kind of guidance for people who are getting inspired maybe they're listening right now imagine they're like all right fuck it we're gonna do it mm-hmm. like what are the spots where they're gonna get stuck and how do you move through these spots where people get stuck yeah so the top three things from Tom Gilovich's research, he's a professor at Cornell and a psychologist. He wrote a paper called The Ideal Road Not Taken. And this is consistent with what Bronnie Ware, well, the palliative care nurse, found in her book, five, The Top Five Regrets of the Dying. Uh, number one, we've talked about it, is fear. The fear of what other people think or the fear of failure. The second is there's no deadlines with these personal goals. And we got deadlines for everything else. So with the personal goals, they always get pushed. Mm-hmm. And we think we have all this time, but three quarters of the population realize they don't because they've reached their deathbed and they haven't done it. And the third is you're usually waiting to feel inspired to go after these things, or you're waiting for the perfect time. And that inspiration rarely hits. So those are the big three barriers. The way that you get through them, well, number number one, we talked about the fear. So it's like understanding that people aren't thinking about you as much as you think, and that there's no real failure. As long as your basic needs are met. Like you have to identify the risks, right. not the fear. So what? write down what your real risks are, right? Are they financial? Is it is it being able to provide? Like all those things are legitimate risks. But the stuff that's connected to ego, you know, what other people think, failure, uh, not as much. So that's the fear piece. I think the accountability piece is huge because if you think about it, all we, a lot of what we have to drive us forward as professionals is accountability. We have a salary to keep us accountable. We don't want to look bad. We don't want to let down our teams. We have um, leaders to keep us accountable. So how can we create those same structures of accountability around our personal goals? Well, number one, write your bucket list because it's actually more powerful than you think. You force yourself to slow down to think about what's important to you. So there's a huge win right there because you're ahead of 76% of the population by actually stopping to identify what you really want, not what other people want. Mm -hmm. It's a reminder that it exists. And as you get buried by the day-to-day, you come back to your list. So that's a great way to create accountability. Very small, easy step. You want to just take small, easy steps. The second is to talk about it. Share your list. Talk about it with your family, with your friends, with your followers. Because if you talk about your list, you then feel accountable to them, right? Like if I tell you, like, I'm going to write a book, that's my big goal. And I bump into you six months later and you're like, hey, how's the book coming? I'm like, well, I better start writing that book. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So you feel accountable to those Harder, People. harder than you might imagine. If that's on your list, they'll just, just oh my say God, that. Yeah. a book is book is no joke. Yeah, yeah. So, um, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't fucking do it. Go do it. Go, go <laughs> fucking well, go do it. And you looked at like the camera go, in that. Go, oh, you mean like, it. Oh, yeah, like go for it. Just letting you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Pack a lunch. You're thinking about them. You put it on the mentor hat. Yeah, <laughs> yeah do it. Do it. Just pack it's gonna a lunch. suck. <laughs> yeah, just pack a lunch. <laughs> pack a lunch. Um, and. If you want to, and the, the, what Mr. Gilovich found is if you can increase your chances of success by 77% if you have an accountability buddy checking in with you or you send regular updates to that accountability buddy. So right there, write your list, share it, get an accountability buddy. And that's what the journal is designed to do is like you write your list in those 10 categories. You write down who's your accountability buddy. You call them, you tell them that. You set a reward so that you actually have something if you achieve it, that creates accountability. You set a deadline. And you start to build inspiration by taking action, which I think combats the last barrier, which is you're waiting for inspiration to hit you. You don't wait. You create your own inspiration through action. Like you're the architect of your own inspiration by taking movement. 
And sometimes we over plan and we forget that action is the plan. So what's the smallest things you can do in the next 48 hours, write them down, start that momentum. And you start to feel the inspiration as you go. There's a quote that comes to mind and I think it's a Yates quote, but I'm not real sure. It's, uh, do not wait to strike until the iron is hot. Instead, make the iron hot by striking. I love that. That's a that's a great one. That's a great quote. Maybe Christian can look up, see if that is Yates or not. But yeah, I, I haven't I think thought that of that me. quote in a while. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's that it's no. that classic wisdom yeah. of like, no, you know, the iron will get hot. You just apply the hammer. Exactly. And like, it'll, the opportunity will come. Yeah. It's Yates. Yeah, it's nice. Yeah. Um, that's such, I mean, all of these things are so key and actionable. And I think another curiosity that I have to get into is not only the philosophy behind it, which is super important, but also how the fuck did you do some of these things <laughs> on your list? So I think we got to go into a couple stories here. Okay, some of these were fucking time. incredible for me to get. All right. Number eight, play ball with President Obama. That was a juggernaut. That's fucking, that's a big one. That's a big one. I mean, that one, that one, you're writing that one down and you're like, you're kind of like, you got to be kind of laughing to yourself when you write that. Oh, one down. we 100%. I remember Johnny called me 2008. President Obama just got elected. He's like, Benny, let's put play basketball with the president on the list. And I laughed. I like, that was my reaction. I was like, huh. I'm like, that is the most impossible thing. We're, by the way, <laughs> way pre-MTV show. We're just a bunch of kids living on an island in Canada. I was like, that's the most impossible thing we could think of. And he's like, yeah. How amazing would it be though? <laughs> and I couldn't argue. Of course. I couldn't argue. So we're like, put it on the list. And so, and this is actually one of the things that we, uh, we went after for the show. And we, 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 we told MTV, we're, we're, we're doing this. They're like, don't do this because the, that we're going to waste a lot of money filming this episode. And we're like, we're going after it. And it was just the four of us. That was the whole rule. Even when we were doing the show, it's just like, you guys can't help us with anything. This is like, we're on our own. We're going to try and make this happen. So what do we do? Like, we know no one in Washington. We just drive our purple nudist bus to Washington, D.C., start <laughs> asking people on the street, hey, excuse me, like, do you know anybody connected to the president? Like, obviously not, didn't get very far. But then we started just emailing politicians through their offices. Like we're, we're trying to play basketball with the president to prove that this is the classic make the iron hot by striking. Oh, we oh, are. I mean, this is like striking. Fucking. We are striking everything. <laughs> we are picketing outside the White House with signs wearing basketball uniforms. We're, we heard the uh, Reg, Reggie Love, who's the president's personal aide, who set up all the games, right? There was these like, I don't know if you remember, like you heard about these secret basketball games, right? That happened in DC. And, the, and Reggie Love was the personal aide of the president. He set up the games. He played ball at Duke. Uh-huh. And he was the gatekeeper sort of. He sent out the text to a few senior officials. We're like, we're getting all these rejections. Official knows. Uh, even the secretary of, of, of transportation put in a call for us to the White House while we're in the room. Official rejection letter from the White House. Sorry, we appreciate your 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 uh, desire to play basketball, but unfortunately, we cannot arrange for a basketball game with the president. We keep striking the iron. <laughs> we're going after it. We hear the uh, Reggie Love works out at the Y every morning at five thirty. So wake up at five, go to the Y, kind of loitering outside, looking for this personal assistant of the president. We don't see him. We ask the guy at the front, hey, have you seen Reggie Love? He's like, no, but that guy that just walked in, that was the secretary of treasury, Tim Geithner. I was like, no way. I run in. He's already got his suit and he's into the pool to do laps. So I just, I don't have a bathing suit. 
So I just take off my clothes and put a towel on. I'm just wearing my boxers underneath. I see him doing laps at, in the pool. I'm just sort of pretending to stretch, waiting for him to come up for air. <laughs> Comes up for air. I'm like, hey, oh, excuse me. I'm like kneeling down so he doesn't see them just wearing boxers. I'm like, and I sort of ask him like, hey, we're trying to do this thing. I immediately feel like, oh my God, what am I doing? Then I look up in the window. I see Secret Service just looking at me, just like they're going to jump through the window. <laughs> and I'm like, oh my God, we got to get out. I got to get out of here. And he was like, nice. But clearly he was like, what is like, sure, email my assistant. So all these no's. Finally, I we get uh, Reggie Love's email, what we think is his email. And we start challenging him and the president to a basketball game. So we're like, you and the president versus us, 7.30 tonight, the YMCA, be there. And we just show up. We did that for a week. No president, no president, no president. And finally, we're like, there's literally nothing we can think of doing anymore. Like, we're starting to piss people off. We yeah, need to yeah, just yeah. leave. And so we, we accept defeat. I end up getting a, a call, a block number, and I pick it up. And all I hear is, what's this say here about you wanting to play basketball against the president and I? And it's the personal aid of the president. And I explained to him why. I'm like, yes, sir. And he says, you know what? I like this. I think I can make this happen. Give me two weeks. I need to run it by the press team. And, uh, you know, they got signed off on everything. They sign off on this. We can do this. I feel really good about it. I'll call you back in two weeks. So two weeks rolls around. I get the call. He says, gentlemen, talk with the press team. It's not going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> and we are just, we're gutted. It's just oh, like, oh, man. And, and he's like, listen, he felt bad. He's like, if you're ever back in D.C., you know, sorry, guys, this is out of my hands. Uh, let me know. I'll give you a tour of the White House. And we go back to D.C. a couple months later. The personal aide, Beauty, he gives us a full tour, shows us his office. We're like, this is right next to the Oval Office. Shows us the, the White House basketball courts, like perfect courts, manicured hedges, presidential seal on each hoop, one presidential basketball. And we're like, could we film this for a minute? Like, we like just get a clip so we can show our friends. And he's like, yeah, the president's not in town. Go for it. And we're filming. And all we hear is, President Obama rolls on the court, just strolls on. Says, hey guys, I heard you in town. Thought the least I could do is shoot a basket with you. And we're just- No way. Totally awestruck. Completely dumbfounded. I mean, we legitimately, he was not supposed to be in town because he had a trip scheduled, but he stayed to pass a bill. Nobody knew. So we legitimately were very, very surprised. And it, what was so cool about that was you kind of have to like shake yourself to believe that it's that it's happening. Because I remember writing this down and 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 really believing. Was and, he in a suit? Was he in loafers? Yeah, 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 yeah. He just rolled up his sleeves. We shot around with him for like twenty minutes. The, the White House photographer was there. Immediately, you forget he's the president because he's so cool. Yeah, he's so disarming. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's like your friend's dad in high school that was so cool. You end up go hang out with your friend, but you really hang out with the dad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so he's like, we're trash talking each other, trying to hit shots. The other person isn't hitting. He's lefty, so he's got like a pretty low release, but he's pretty smooth. Uh huh. So we, we're we having a, a really fun and nice time with him. And he's like, I heard you guys help people. I like that. And, uh, and, and that moment, was, it was pretty monumental for me because I, here was this thing that I thought was impossible. Here it was happening. So I had no choice to believe that anything was possible because it, it had just happened. And I was like, huh, I guess you can do anything. And I was like, I feel like everyone has the ability to prove to themselves that they can do those things. And that if they just take small steps towards their goals, eventually they're going to get to that place where they're like, holy crap, I did the thing. I didn't think I could do that. And you, like a couple of those dominoes fall and all of a sudden your whole perspective changes. 
And when you face a challenge, you're not like, can I do this? You're like, do I want to do this? Because mm-hmm. I know it's going to be hard. But does this align with who I truly am? And do I want to put in the work to make this happen? Like, does it mean enough to me? And I think we all have that power to, to do that. I'm fucking inspired. <laughs> uh, do you know Alex Benayan? I love way? Alex Benayan. Yeah, you guys have like similar, some similar tangents of your stories of like impossible things yeah. that you've pulled off from this unrelenting belief and this willingness to just put yourself in the fray and both trust and go for it and surrender to what is and, and all of the things that are necessary yeah. that would be... I mean, even the idea of that many rejections is fucking intimidating for me. You know, it's like, but to be willing to move through after all of these doors getting shut, getting shut, getting shut, getting shut. And then you, then you, the finally the door opens when you've practiced that and realized that there's that possibility at the end of the line, like it's got to change your whole life at that mm-hmm. point. I mean, that's a moment that nothing is ever the same really after that. Cause then you realize like, Oh, legitimately, like what's on the inside cover of your book, the impossible is possible. That's not a hypothetical inspirational thing you put on a fucking t-shirt. That's like you lived it in a way. Yeah. And once you, once you see that it, it does change the way that you, you operate. And as I said, I think, I think we all have that ability. The other thing that completely changed the way that, that I operate is the, 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 <laughs> the energy and the, the, when, when we helped other people achieve their dreams, the first time we helped someone, we gave this dude a truck because he was uh, living in a homeless shelter and he wanted to start a landscaping business. And he wrote into us and he was like, before I die, I want to bring pizzas to the homeless shelter. And we were like, finally, someone we can help. Like, we don't have any money, <laughs> but we can definitely buy some pizzas. Yeah. We're like, meet us here. Let's interview you and let's make this happen. So we go, we interview this guy. And we learn that like, the reason he wanted to give pizzas to the homeless shelter is because he had lived in the homeless shelter for a while. And he's like, when people came in with food, it was like the best day. Felt like someone cared about him. Wow. And he, and he sort of started this this business, uh, but like his truck had broken down and everything was like on the rocks. And we come out of that interview and we're like, we got to get this dude a truck. But we had $480 between the four of us. <laughs> Canadians, so it's like less. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it was like, like maybe $350, <laughs> yeah. depending on the yeah. day. But we charged to a used car salesman. We're like, sir, we need a truck. Give us your cheapest truck. There's a guy in your community and he needs this truck. What's your cheapest truck? He's like, there it is, boys. 2100 bucks. We're like, <laughs> we got 480. <laughs> and then we told him the story of Brett, and he's like, All right, let's do it. And then we didn't even, we're so young and dumb, we didn't even know that you needed insurance. He's like, What about insurance? And we're like, uh, he's like, I'll pay for insurance. He paid for insurance out of his own pocket, gives us the keys. We drive it up to Brent, toss him the keys. We're like, here's your truck. Brent just stands there. Bear hugs me and starts to cry. Wow. And he's just, you know, this is the first time we'd ever helped anybody. Someone that we didn't know. And this was 2006. And we come out of that experience and we're like, we got to keep doing this. Like, this is pretty cool. And so, you know, throughout the years, it's been like really amazing moments. Like you see the list. You don't have the list of us helping other people, but like reunited in a father and son after 17 years. 
helping a girl get a bionic hand that she always wanted, um, helping someone find her mom's grave that she couldn't, didn't know where her mom was buried because she passed away into Katrina uh, and they were separated. And, uh, you know, it's those, they, so those, those moments are really cool. You know, you, and you stay in touch with those people. You share a moment that means so much. And it's like, all of a sudden you're friends for life, right? Mm -hmm. You sort of like have this connection because you shared this experience that means so much to them. So you really get to know yeah. them. And I think that that's, you know, a huge thing for me that I've realized how powerful is like giving without expectation and just giving to like, you know, it'll give back to you because you're going to, you're going to fuel up from that. And it's actually when you do it right, there's a collapse between giving and receiving. That's mm. actually the act of giving is you receiving immediately at the same time. And there's, so there's okay, no, yeah. there's no like waiting for anything to return. It's like, uh, it's happening in simultaneity. Mm. Right? It's like, as you're giving, you're watching the receipt of which, which then fills you back up. And it's this infinity loop that's actually flowing. And that's when you know you're in like in the right sweet spot. It's not like, I'm going to give you this and wait. If you're waiting, you fucked it up. It's like, it's right then, right now, in the moment. The giving is the gift for you in return, and that's it. It's yeah, like, yeah. that way you avoid all this expectation. Yeah. Totally. And then for the person receiving, it's also like you can get in this trap, and, and Mark Manson talks about this, like you can get in this trap of now, okay, now I feel like I owe something. But really, if you understand that any true giving, all they want to see is the full receipt of that gift or a compliment like you give a compliment and someone like tears up and they're like, fucking thank you. Like, that's all you need. That's what you gave the compliment that's for. You, yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's why you give the gift. You give the compliment a bit, but all too often we'll shy away from giving somebody our gratitude back because we're afraid that we'll like, we'll owe them something uh -huh. if we actually allow ourselves to receive it. But all we owe them is the receipt of the thing itself. Yeah. It's like the good analogy is like, if it's your like birthday or I get you a gift. And like, all, I'm getting you the gift because I think it's going to make you happy. So it's going to make me happy seeing you receive that gift and be surprised and be happy. But it's like me giving you a gift and you'd be like, oh, yeah, here's your gift back. And you're like, no, wait, wait, open the gift. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I actually got this for you because I think you're going to like it. Like, I <laughs> totally. Don't, yeah, I don't need that gift. I think, too, the other thing where like this, there's a parallel to where I, 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 I've definitely felt like this, and I think a lot of people get stuck up on this when it comes to asking for help, like if you're struggling. Like let's say you're going through any type of emotional struggle and you're worried about being a burden for someone else. So you don't want to reach out to someone for help because you're like, I don't want to be that person that like maybe is always like being this burden or, I, you know, I just don't want to, I got to, I want to suck it up and I want to figure it out. I just don't want to, to, to ask for help. But what you're doing when you ask for help, it's like in that moment, you're opening the door for them to come back to you in their eventual time of need. Because mm -hmm. the truth is, I mean, you just look at the data. Everyone's going to go through a mental health crisis in their life, not necessarily from a mental illness, but from bereavement, divorce, whatever. Or a, one of the thousand micro crises that we all face where we're exactly. just a little down. And beyond them being there to help you in that moment— you're opening a true, authentic opportunity for someone to help you is actually the number one thing that anybody can recommend to pull you out of depression anyways, is to actually be of service to somebody else. Exactly. So you're really giving them the gift of being able to give to you, right? Like, And so the idea of not asking for help is crazy. Like when I can, even if I'm in a down state, but I have a friend who like really needs me, you know, and I show up and I'm really there for him, all of a sudden 
I'm like, oh, wait, why was I de- depressed again? I, I, don't, I forgot. It Be- reminds me who I am. Reminds you who you are. You also, your brain doesn't have the ability to think of two things at once. Yeah. So you can't think about how shitty you feel and the other person at the same time. <laughs> right. So you're just like, all right, I'm just thinking about you. I'm not as depressed as I used to be because I'm not just spinning these negative thoughts in my head. And that's actually one of the things that I like to have in this, like, you know, these habits that help me get out of any funk, like helping others is one of them because of that exact, what you just said, you get a sense of fulfillment, you build a meaningful connection with someone and you stop thinking about your own problems, mm-hmm. right? And then it's like the other things, like purpose is, is, in, is in there. Yep. That's why the list is important. You know, connection, talking about these things and getting out of nature. You can just get out of nature 20 minutes. You don't have to exercise. You're just going to feel a little bit better. Yeah, that's another it's another huge hack. You know, uh, Charlie and the Dream Machine? Yeah. His yeah. whole thing? Yeah, Charlie was on the podcast. I love Charlie, yeah. I, I met Charlie just before he biked, did the big uh, bike. Yeah, yeah, but I love I love seeing it. It's funny. So I, yeah, Charlie met about four years ago and, and Alex Benayat I met just when he started writing his book. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so you see there's like a little blurb in there about our meeting and he like all uh, there's just all those you see see these people that are creating these ripple effects right just by just unabashedly just charging for and i think that we can all appreciate that like we 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 have this sort of reverence for people that that have that audacity to to go after the thing in the in spite of all the odds and in spite of what other people think and the universality between it is you all believe that it's possible you know Char- yeah. charlie's like one of his things is pro-noia. It's the belief that the universe is conspiring for you at all times. And he's like, he's pro-noid as fuck. He's like, the universe is always conspiring. And then anything happens. And he's like, we're on a winning streak. <laughs> he's we're a on a winning it's streak. So yeah. You know, and he's he gets so fired up. And that energy it's creates contagious. like these fucking miraculous thing after miraculous thing, just like your, just like your story. And same with same with Alex. It was like this, this fucking belief that it was possible that he could get on prices right and he could mm-hmm. do this energy like I, could, I can do it we can do it and then, and then putting full maximum energy like maximum no nothing held back just absolute audacity what they would say in the kabbalist lineage is tekufat the sacred audacity Ooh. to just go step in with full force divinely inspired and that becomes like this magnet and it's i can track many of the you know, great things that happened in my life to moments where I was like filled with that, that type of energy. And it was just like, and at that point it was just, I was like the, the Galaga machine. And I was just like pulling in other different resources, connections, opportunities, because I was just filled with that life force. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that drew in people that also were supporting you to be that person and to do that thing. Yeah. It's like, you know, when you think about people that are just dreaming so big, you get inspired just by the the that act of of dreaming. Yeah. You know, you're like, wow, that's like I want to be involved with that. And then it's like a self fulfilling prophecy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. All right, we're we're winding down here. You gotta gotta get to the airport, but I have to ask you, what Guinness Book of World Records record did you manage to take? Did you manage to take down? <laughs> It's pretty lame, actually. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't matter. See, I guess you think about that, and you're like, some records, like probably not a lot of heavy content. Yeah, we did. We did the, the largest speed dating event. <laughs> it's in Florida. But don't they have to get sanctioned? That you have to like talk to Guinness. Oh, the Guinness, Guinness dude came. Yeah, 
he came out and uh, gave us the plaque and, you know, we, we celebrated. So, what, yeah. so, what, so the interesting part of that is not actually being able to throw that, which seems like, you know, some logistics and you got to have some reach and whatever to yeah. throw that. But like, how do you get that? Was there a previous largest speed dating event yeah. or was that a new category? Yeah, I think they, they, there was a previous one that we had to, you know, So did you topple. just, did you read the book and were like, this one is sus. <laughs> <laughs> we can fucking take this one out for sure. This one's got our name on it. No, no, that was my dream from the beginning. No. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was Play Basketball Obama and Largest Speed Dating. Yeah, yeah, I think that was one that we knew we could topple. So we had to, we had to get everyone out. I just yeah. want to know like what it was like when you and your buddies were reading the book and then somebody must have found that one and be like, yo, this one is sus for sure. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly how it happened. <laughs> yeah. Most of them are very, very hard. So that was was one that was we could we could actually do. Yeah. Yeah. So that Well, yeah. I hope this inspires some other people to look through the Guinness Book of World Records and be like, there's some sus shit in here. Like we Bro, can, we if can you take one thing away from this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> All right. There, there's another one. Yeah. Uh, solve a crime or capture a fugitive. Oh yeah. Oh, we went, we went, uh, I'm, I'm thinking like some dog, the bounty hunter shit. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly. We went with the bounty hunter in LA and, and we followed him. To, and it wasn't to, dog. A non-dog. What? It was non-dog. Wasn't, <laughs> wasn't, not dog. wasn't dog. Dog. Didn't dog. Dog had some fucking crazy scandal happen. Yeah. What happened with dog? I think dog's in the doghouse. Dog might sure. be in the doghouse. We went with a different dog. Not <laughs> a different in the dog. dog okay. Not a not in yeah, the doghouse. Yeah. Dog. So we 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 just you know legitimately like went along with the with the a bounty hunter like looking for someone that was skipping bail, and had to track down um, this guy at, at night. And it's just sort of freaky because you 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 kind of knock on a door and you don't know what's going to happen, and you may have to. They may come with you. Um, completely you know easily or they may it may come down to running after them and uh and it ended up being fairly non-combative like you know it was a little bit of a, a tussle but there was like we were there's five six of us and did and, you have to get like a like a bounty license or were you just you're we, operating we, under we, the radar of the bounty hunters we were we were underneath the dog <laughs> <laughs> we were the mini dogs yeah 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 so that was what that, a crazy what a crazy class of human that still exists bounty hunter right yeah, kind it's of like mavericks. Some, yeah, for yeah. real. Yeah, they're out, and it's like it's you know it's sort of they're like yeah they're really kind of like you don't really have much. I don't think you go to too much training. You're just like yeah, I'm gonna go get the get that dude. <laughs> <laughs> you're like okay. They're like you just put your name at the top of the phone book. A A A like bail bonds, just you know, or uh -huh. bounty hunter, and you just get the call, and you're like, all right, I'll get him. <laughs> yeah that was hectic the other thing that was was very hectic was um uh streaking a field and, and trying to get away which we had this oh, whole yeah. plan to, to to do the perfect streak we went to an mls game soccer game i mean you were inspired by your bus that's I mean, right obviously no tan lines that yeah that's 100 percent. i didn't even think about that nod to the nudist <laughs> nod to nod the cap not to the no tan lines so yeah so we we went to an mls game we we um, had this, what we thought was a perfect plan, which was like one guy streaks, two guys dress up like security. They track the guy that's streaking and be the first of the security to tackle him. And then I'll dress up like I work for the team in a, in a polo shirt that I buy at the gift shop, khaki pants, earpiece, walkie-talkie, clipboard. And I'll go out just before the streak and I'll try and convince everyone it's a promo, guys. We're about to start the promo. Kind of create some confusion and try and get 
Johnny the Streaker from the two security, who are the two other guys, and get away scot-free. Pretty terrible plan, to be honest. <laughs> I don't know. The plan sounds pretty good. It. We thought so, too. In hindsight, <laughs> not, in hindsight, way more police that were up. They were in abundance. So we roll in, and all of a sudden, we're like, wow, there's a lot of cops here. <laughs> and we're Canadian, and we don't want to get kicked out of the country. This is This is tricky. Keep in mind, we also are filming, so we have to like film under the guys. Like Blue Jays game? What are we, no, this what are we talking about? This was MLS, soccer games. So oh, soccer. We, we couldn't even get permission to film at any major league sporting event. This this was, well, this was major league soccer. So, but it was still a lot of people sure. at the time, Kansas City Wizards, and we're like, okay, we're doing this. Well, right away, the cops are like, you two guys dressed up like you look like security, but you're clearly not. What's going on? And they are kind of tracking <laughs> my two friends, who, by the way, we got a seamstress to kind of like uh, make tearaway pants. So just in case, like they needed to streak as well. Because it was sort of like, we're like, there may be a, a situation where we just got to all go for it. So <laughs> anyhow, so I get, the, I'm, I'm on the walkie. I get the call from the producer. Be like, the, the two security guys, Duncan and Dave, they're being, they're being tracked. Like you, you just might be you and Johnny who's streaking. You're going to have to tackle Johnny and get us out of here. I'm like, oh, great. So I go out in the clipboard. I walk out with confidence. I'm like, all right, boys, promotional streak is happening in 30 seconds. You know, at the one tunnel entrance to the field. And I'm just talking to like security and stuff. And they're like, what are you talking about? They just are confused. I'm like, hold this tracksuit. I'm going to need it in a second. I'm just telling everyone that the streak's happening. Everyone's like, and there's cops. I'm like, oh my God. Then I hear an uproar from the, cl- from the crowd. And I see Johnny just streaking in his cleats zigging back and forth. I'm like, here full, we go. Full nude boxers? What are you yeah, saying? yeah, nude. And he goes, <laughs> and I'm like, I got to catch Johnny. So Johnny, I'm yelling at him. He's deacon because he's got cleats on. People are, security's coming out. I tackle Johnny. And I'm trying to tell everyone, it's his promo. Those old promo. rugby skills. There you go, yeah. Below below the shoulders. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Not a football tackle. We're not, <laughs> yeah, for sure. No, this no. is a proper tackle. Not leading with the head. Yep. Yeah, so I got him. Uh-huh. So I Stick him, <laughs> put him on the ground. And I'm like, all right, guys, promo. All of a sudden, he's already getting handcuffed. There's cops everywhere. I'm like, oh my God. I'm getting up in a daze and I hear another roar from the crowd. The two security guys, Duncan and Dave, they took the um, the distraction of Johnny and they go. <laughs> now these guys are going. It's mayhem. Everyone's jumping on the field. I'm like, oh my God, we're all going to jail. <laughs> and I'm like, I think I have to streak too. But, but I, I didn't have tearaway pants. So I just sort of <laughs> awkwardly take my shorts off, take off my shirt. And I, I feel a, a grab on my ankle. Someone in the dog pile that's gotten Johnny grabs my ankle. I'm like, nope. I rip my foot out. I'm, in the, I'm now just in socks. And I take off the other way. You got to go it, it, on video. You can see this on Vimeo. I think there's the clip of us streaking. And I go, I'm burning. I try and do a spin move <laughs> to miss a tackle. Yeah, yeah. You can't spin moving socks. No. And uh, down. Anyways, didn't get away. We did cross off, spend a night in jail, which was the, on the two list. for one, one for two, <laughs> <laughs> one for two. And uh, yeah, so that was a wild one. And we competed in a crump competition in in South Central, where uh-huh. we, I didn't have any experience dancing. This was like my biggest fear was dancing in front of people. Ended up being an amazing experience, like such a fun, cool welcoming just like we go into this heated environment and everyone just gave us so much love just for trying you know um and so some really we survived on a deserted island which was also wild because we were like let's go and like lost was big at the time so let's Mm -hmm. let's just pretend like we go down in a plane 
and we have to survive. Uh, but you can't do any research. You're just on a plane. All of a sudden, you got to survive on a desert island. But you can. we can all bring one thing. And uh, it can't be fire and it can't be food. So you can bring one thing. So each of us brought like, we brought a machete. Uh, I brought a, a headlamp for the night. Johnny brought a, a pot so that we could try and distill water. And Dave brought <laughs> a mask and snorkel. We're like, what, are you going to go snorkeling? <laughs> like, we need to live here. Yeah. He's like, no, I'm going to spear fish. We're like, no, you're not. <laughs> you know how hard that is? So he didn't end up getting any fish. With like a stick? No, he, could, he did not get any. He couldn't well, get any. What was he going to try with? Though? He was going to try and get it with a stick. Yeah, that was his plan, but he just didn't. He wasn't successful. No, that's a that's a it's a hard a thing tough to do. Plan. Spear did, fishing is not easy, not even easy with a proper spear gun. Yeah, exactly. That's what we told him right away. But it was too late. <laughs> it would have been way better just to bring the spear, and then you could just use your yeah, eyeballs. Yeah, exactly. And look in the water. Yeah. So we didn't tell each other what we were bringing. We're like bringing one thing. We tell, <laughs> and then so and then you see it, and you're like, bro, really? Mask and snorkel? How's this gonna help us? Where are we? Club Med? <laughs> yeah. No, it's not gonna help. He ended up. He did catch us some crabs. Um, oh, not bad. Not bad, but we needed to, <laughs> the biggest thing was making were fire. Were they big enough to eat? They were kind of big enough to eat. We needed to boil them, though. We couldn't just eat them. Maybe you could eat them raw, but... No, no. 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 We, thank you. Yeah, yeah it's a good no. thing we didn't. Okay. So anyways, the biggest thing was fire, though. Um, we, we, we lived off coconuts for three days, which is pretty amazing that you can... The coconuts are... Totally. So drinking the water. But it was gnarly. Like, we had to... You know, sleeping on the beach with like, it's just, you couldn't sleep. And we had like, there we were in the Cook Islands. They just dropped us off on, off of the island, just left us. And so there was like rats on the island taking our coconuts, these huge uh, coconut crabs. Um, and so we lived so off coconuts. So you didn't even fucking snorkel anyways. Coconut crabs. Yeah. I don't know if you could eat those. I don't know if, I, I, yeah, for some reason, either we were scared of them or we didn't know you could eat them. <laughs> I don't know if you can eat them. I don't know if you can. So anyways, the biggest thing was, was, was we're getting quite loopy by day three. And we're like, we need to eat something, which means we need to make a fire. And so again, we hadn't done any research. So we weren't like, we didn't watch a YouTube video on how to start fire, but we did have the general <laughs> knowledge that you could rub a stick to something and you could eventually make fire. So we're trying that. And it's, you know, obviously very difficult. To yeah. Start you need a like a bow drill. Yeah. So it wasn't, it wasn't working, but we were also really uh, ribbing Johnny, who bought the pot, because we're like, this pot, like, you know, we need fire to you know, boil seawater and distill it. Like, that's, I don't know. But the top of the pot was glass, and we used it as a magnifying glass. Oh. And we, we propped it up on sticks, and the coconut husks were super flammable. And so we were able to start fire with the uh, glass and making, like, a, a hot point on the coconut husk. So then we made um, the fire, and then it was like, okay, there was these big seabirds and we were getting to the point where like, I think we need to eat one of those birds. And <laughs> I was like, there's only one person that's going to. And at this point, Johnny was pretty much KO'd. <laughs> he was just laying on, like he was getting sick. Dave was was our sole uh, provider of coconuts because he could climb coconut, the palm trees. Yeah. And uh, I was pretty much useless. I had my, my headlamp and so I was, but... I was like, Duncan, you are going to be the only person that's going to be able to kill a bird. Like, I, I, I'm sorry, but I don't know if I can come with you. <laughs> I'm like, you got to go and and can you? And he's like, I can do it. And we're kind of getting like, you Lord of the Flies. How long were you going to stay? A week? We were like, you're doing like four or five days. Uh -huh. 
So day three, you were yeah, like, day like we three, fucking we need eat. food. Yeah. And so we're like, um, so Duncan goes and he got a rock and this is a little bit graphic, but he threw it and hit a bird out of a tree and actually uh, killed it. And we put it on a, a stick and roasted it and ate it. And it was uh, uh, delicious. <laughs> but also <laughs> wow. very wild to experience that. I mean, you know, and um, and then we cooked the crabs. And uh, yeah, I mean, and that we, was we, the we last, survived. And I'm that was the last story. Caribbean alb- albatross that ever we, existed. Yeah, we didn't go back to Club Med. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, we learned a lot through that, uh, through those and then, you know, these memories like this, these are like, these are like treasures. Yeah, man. You know, honestly, like what I, what this is, is this is you opening up a treasure chest mm-hmm. and showing me jewels of unimaginable splendor. And I'm getting the chance to like go in and all of us listeners are getting a chance to go in and look at these things that are filled with wonder and awe and hope and magic. And, and that's what all of our memories are. They're, mm-hmm just jewels that we can collect and think of how many days in our lives and weeks and months, maybe even years where we've got no jewels that we can harvest. Like, Oh yeah. Where, where's, where the, where the jewels from that? Where's that story that I can tell and get people laughing and and get myself laughing and feel this kind of like, that's, that's not the life. That's not the life I want to live. I want to live a life packed with jewels. And after this conversation, I'm, even more inspired to do so than uh, than ever before. So, thank you, man. Thanks for thanks for doing this, and thanks for being one of those individuals that leads a life that the life itself is inspiring, even beyond the words, which are intelligent and inspiring. So, fuck yeah, thanks, man. Yeah, that means uh, a lot to me, considering you know how much I admire the work that you've done and who you are. And it's just really uh, I'm really pr- privileged to be able to actually be here and have this conversation with you. It's kind of surreal. So it's uh, it's a real honor. So thank you for having me. And thank you, everybody, for listening. Cool. And we'll hang out at Burning Man. Damn straight. Let's fucking go. <laughs> uh, the Bucket List Journal. Yeah. It's dope as hell. Thanks, so bro. encourage people to check this out. Amazon, normal places. Yeah. Where can you get it? Yeah, you can get it on Amazon or writeyourlist.com. Or if you go to my Instagram, which is at Ben Nempton, it's the one link there. So you can check it out. If anything, you can use those 10 categories as a guide. You know, when you write your list, you can think about all the different categories of your life. And that's a great place to start. So you can just look at those, which is on the on the website. Cool. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. Go after it. Go for your win. Fucking let's get it. Let's get Bye-bye. it. Thanks for tuning into this podcast with Ben Nempton. I hope you guys are inspired to go out to do some cool and crazy shit in your life. We love you, and we'll see you next week.